Good evening and welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and top instructors go to share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, Ben Hogan Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, the Salt Creek Golf Retreat, TaylorMade Golf, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, and Super Speed Golf. Now here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for coming back and joining me tonight here on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and I can't thank you enough for continuing to make us a part of your golf content. And tonight I'm very excited because I've got two great friends that I get to spend some time with, plus share with you this evening. First up with me is going to be a return visit from 2003 PGA champion and one of the most underrated and frankly underappreciated golfers of all time, and that's Sean McKeel. Sean won the 2003 PGA championship, one of only three players to finish under par that year at, at Oak Hill and uh, the greatest approach shot to a 72nd hole in major championship history. I promise you, if you don't remember it, go watch it on YouTube or check it out on my Twitter page at CT Mascaro because I posted it a little earlier this evening. But I'm really looking forward to catching up with Sean here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to get a return visit from the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. You guys know how much I admire Peter and the thousands of great interviews that he has done with almost every great player of the 20th and 21st centuries. No one knows more about the history of golf or has been a better host of a golf talk show than Peter Kessler, right? I'm going to get Peter's thoughts on the Ryder Cup. We'll talk about the Tour Championship, plus what we've been seeing from Tiger and Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau lately. So very much looking forward to having Peter back on the show with me a little bit later on in this half hour. So a lot more great stories and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. Again, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me over the next hour or so. But before we go any further, and for any of you who lost a loved one or a friend or a coworker 17 years ago, tonight being September the 11th, our thoughts and prayers are with you. As Americans, we all lost something that day, a part of all of us died as we watched the events unfold. It was a span of days of incredible sadness and incredible loss. It's going to be forever a part of all of us. But to the families and the people of New York, our hearts are heaviest with you today. All right, before we get started, I want to remind you about our good friend Matthew Lawrence and his show Backspin Golf, which airs Sunday mornings from 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time. It's my regular Sunday, 8.03 a.m. tea time. It is broadcast on WLXG, ESPN Radio, AM 1300, up in Lexington, Kentucky. You can stream it live by going online to WLXG.com or doing what I did, which is download the WLXG app. Matthew does a great job, and it's a great way, folks, to kickstart your Sunday mornings. His equally fantastic twin brother, Mitchell, also has a great golf show that marries golf and travel. It's called Talking Golf Getaways, which you can find online at golfnewsnet.com or over on Audioboom or really anywhere you consume podcasts. He and his co-host, Darren Bunch, travel all over the world. and They let you know about the great places to stay, play, and even eat while you're there. Again, it's called Talking Golf Getaways, and you can stream it online at golfnewsnet.com or over on Audioboom. 
And as you guys know, we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear a word from Steve Rondonero about the great things they've got going on up there. Play legendary golf at French Lick Resort, the only place in the country where you can play courses by two Hall of Fame designers on the same property. Our Pete Dye and Donald Ross courses offer two very different challenges. Experience them both and save with our Hall of Fame package. Our two historic hotels are unique as well. Cap it off with a fun visit to the French Lick Casino. Check us out online at FrenchLick.com. Bring a group and save even more. Play legendary golf this season at French Lick Resort. Yeah, go online to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself what a wonderful place it is and to book your stay as well. I also want to give a shout-out to our friends at the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company. Folks, if you haven't hit Ben Hogan Iron since the 80s or the 90s, do yourself a favor. Get a demo iron from them, either their Fort Worth, PTX, or new Edge irons, and go out on the range and compare it to what you have. All Ben Hogan irons and wedges are handcrafted one at a time in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. No mass production, no shortcuts. Now you can get custom-made irons and wedges at BenHoganGolf.com. So go online to BenHoganGolf.com. They're going to build the clubs to your specifications. And best of all, charge you a fraction of the retail price. Again, their complete line of forged irons, wedges, utility irons, hybrids, bags, and accessories are available to you online at BenHoganGolf.com. We're also proud to be partnering with Russ Holden and the folks over at Caddy for a Cure. One of the most unique opportunities in the world of professional golf is available to you through Caddy for a Cure. Spend a day inside the ropes with one of the world's best players as their caddy. Fantastic way to have the time of your life while supporting our wounded service members and Fanconi Anemia. You're going to get to walk side-by-side with your tour player, experiencing professional golf as an insider. And in addition to the amazing experience you're going to have, you're going to get a fantastic gift package from Caddy for a Cure, which includes Under Armour logoed apparel and an eyewear package, a tour-grade caddy bib suitable for autographs and framing, a 10-cup ball marking gift, Chef's Cut Real Jerky, and professional photographs of your day. They've got spots available right now that you can bid on to caddy for Rory McIlroy, Brooks Kepka, Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth, Jason Day, Justin Rose, and several others. Go online to Caddy for a Cure, that's C-A-D-D-Y-F-O-R-A-C-U-R-E, caddyforacure.com to learn more. All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is a guy who has become very important to me over the years and a big part of our show, and that's 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeel. Sean is by far one of the most underrated players who's ever played out on tour. He, he doesn't get enough credit, and then, you know, he's achieved so much more than he is given credit for. Yes, the media recognizes the fact that he won the 2003 PGA Championship, but they fail to give him credit for things like his second place finish in 2006 back at the PGA, finished runner-up to Tiger Woods at Medina. His second place finish at the 2006 World Match Play Championship after he defeated Tiger Woods in the first round. Or his 20 top 10 finishes and his 57 top 25s. He's only the second player to ever record a double eagle in the U.S. Open, which he did back in 2010 at Pebble Beach. And after getting to know Sean over the last several years, I know he's looking forward to getting out on the Champions Tour in January, and I'm certainly looking forward to rooting for him when he gets out there, and I'm very honored that he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Sean, how are you, my friend? Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you. So, Sean, I wanted to start our time tonight by going back to your memories of this day 17 years ago. Here we are on September the 11th. So going back to 2001, a day that we're going to carry with us forever. It was a Tuesday, just like it is this year. I know you were coming off 
a tie for 34th at the Canadian Open that previous Sunday with the Tampa Bay Classic was going to be the next uh, event on the PGA Tour. And that event, like the WGC Championship in Missouri the following week, both canceled. But uh, wanted to go back to 2000 and, uh, 2001 and get your memories of September 11th. Right. Uh, I mean, much like uh, me, everybody, it's a, it's a tough day, you know, um, you know, a lot tougher for others than, than myself. But, you know, just going back, I mean, I think all of us remember pretty much pretty vividly of, of everything that happened, um, where they were, you know, what time it was, you know, what they were having for breakfast. You know, anyway, I had um, uh, was coming back on was supposed to come back Sunday night from the Canadian Open and we had a I think it was pretty bad weather up there, so I, my flight got delayed till Monday. And I was a pretty early flight. Got home Monday, and and um, you know got home from the airport, and just kind of did my normal things. It was time to cut the grass, so I cut the grass. And I remember kind of going in, and I wasn't feeling particularly well, and and ultimately ended up in the emergency room that afternoon with a kidney stone. Wow. Um, and I was supposed, to, and I, yeah, and I was supposed to fly to Tampa that night. So I, I, I delayed that trip until Tuesday morning. And Tuesday morning, I was out in the backyard walking my dog. And my wife came running out saying there's a plane that hit the World Trade Center. And, you know, I just kind of immediately thought, oh, they must have bad weather. And somebody just cruising up and down the, you know, one of the rivers out there, just, you know, whatever. And um, went back inside and saw that there's no way that that was a, a small, small airplane. And I sat there riveted to the TV, much like everybody else. Now, um, when all was said and done, you know, two, two months prior to that, I was at Westchester playing and I was actually doing some business with Cantor Fitzgerald. I'd done some outings for them in their West coast office. Um, at a, um, and so, uh, in June, middle of June that year, I had gone uh, to meet a gentleman by the name of Fred Veraki who worked for Cantor Fitzgerald. And he was actually the president of a company called E-Speed, which was part of Cantor Fitzgerald. And we had, we had lunch on the 104th floor up there at the Windows of the World Restaurant. It was, you know, two months, two months and a week prior to the events that happened September 11th. And uh, I didn't really think much about that until later. Um, obviously felt for all the people there because I, was, I had just been there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I sat there like a lot of people with um, – you know, with a ton of emotions and a lot of anger that I still, I think that all of us still kind of harbor um, uh, to a certain degree. I can't even imagine what the families uh, that lost friends and loved ones really must be feeling. But anyway, that was my experience. And it was, uh, you know, I tried to explain that to my children. My children are both 14 and 11. So they, they, they only know so much from what I've been able to tell them and what they've read and, and seen on TV. But it was a, obviously a horrific day uh, in this country. Yeah, it certainly was. And I, I appreciate you sharing that story, Sean. I know you and your dad are you know, both <clears throat> pilots. So I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, boy, you must have had a, a deeper connection with what was going on. You talk about being riveted to the TV as a, as a pilot. You know, I, what was it like as a pilot looking at what happened and then obviously the, the remaining events, events of the day, uh, knowing what must have been going on in those airplanes? <laughs> Well, certainly my experience as a pilot was was nothing compared to what the the men and women do each and every day um, in those big jets. Um, my father, however, was 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 on an air was on a flight from Sydney, I think, up to Penang, and uh, so he was in Asia, and he got something through his 
to the electronic, um, it's called the eight cars and it, it, it's a way to receive messages from the company. And there was a little bit told to him about that, but they said that, you know, you, as soon as you got to, uh, uh, Penang to please call in and, and all that stuff. And that's when he found out, but he was in the air, uh, when he got word of that too, but it's, you know, it's a bit disturbing. I mean, you know, there are obviously a lot of things that kind of, um, you really had to fall in line uh, for those acts to have been committed. I mean, I, I, you know, you think about, we've all heard the videos or the audios of the phone calls that were made um, by some of the flight attendants from some of the family members. And certainly I've heard some of the audio tapes um, that probably aren't out there in the public from air traffic control. And they're pretty, pretty sickening actually. Um, but, um, you know, just as an aviator myself, I just, um, you know, it was just uh, really unbelievable that something like that, the coordination that it took, the planning that it took. And I, I will say, I will say one other thing. My sister was on a flight back to Oregon in, um, May or June of that year. And she was sitting next to a person, um, just talking to him before the plane landed. And they asked if my sister, if she believed in believed in any type of God. And my sister kind of thought that was a strange, uh, strange question from someone she hadn't even had a conversation with the entire flight. And um, that person said, well, you'll all meet, meet your God very soon. And, um, you know, my, she didn't really think much about it. And, and uh, you know, whether that person was someone that was, you know, plotting these flights, was, was testing out the security, I, she doesn't know, but she got a really, really sickening feeling after September 11th because she, it took her back to those, the, that particular day of her flight. So, um, you know, just, just really all in all, it's just a sad day. I mean, it's, uh, it's horrific. Yeah, indeed. And that's an unbelievable story. Thanks for sharing that, that Sean. Yeah. That's something, you know, for, for your sister have, to have to go through and now remember back on amazing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Changing gears a little bit, Sean. Um, I want to look a few months ahead. As we get to January, you'll reach your 50th birthday. I, I'm, I'm imagining you're doing something that most people our age don't do, which is sort of count down the days until you get to turn 50 so you can go out <laughs> yeah. on the Champions Tour. So, you know, flash forward ahead. How excited, how much are you looking forward to getting out there in January? I am excited. And I, I've been looking you know, forward to this for, for a long time. Um, you know, in my case, um, you know, playing against the younger kids out there on the web.com, you know, it's proven, it really proved to be a challenge. Um, you know, there were a lot of things kind of in play, uh, you know, losing my father at the very end of 2016, um, really, really was a shock. And it just, I just had a poor attitude through 2017. Uh, certainly there were a lot of things that I needed to take care of, um, on his behalf. And uh, as executive of the estate, that took away a lot of my kind of desire to really want to get out there and compete. I just didn't have the desire to be out there playing. And, and, you know, that finally went away. But again, you know, a lot of these young kids were out and they were, they're, they're, they're eager and they're ambitious and they're very, very talented um, players. And they, they're all trying to get to the PGA tour. And I, I'm certainly seeing the writing on the wall for me is my career on the PJ tour, as far as being an exempt player and in, in playing any, you know, any consistency out there uh, was coming to an end. And I, and I knew that, um, and I, I could see that coming for a while. 
So I am excited. I'm excited for a lot of reasons. One, um, you know, I think it just it, it uh, will allow me to kind of get back out there and, and play golf with my contemporaries. I mean, every single tournament that's played out there, I would be willing to guess that of the 78 guys playing every week, there's probably 75 or 76 of those guys that I've played with at least once in my career. So I look forward to kind of getting back out there and playing with, with, with those guys and certainly playing with guys my own age. Um, there was a, there was a tournament this year and I think it was in, uh, I think it was in Mexico and, um, a couple of the guys out there, uh, both, both kids. I mean, typically, typically I'm the oldest player in the field, which is, which is kind of, it's kind of sad in a way. Um, you know, and I can't help but notice that the guys kind of look at me like, what is this guy still doing out here? So, um, but anyway, so we're playing and, 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 uh, one of the other players and the other caddy were talking about video games and they were talking about Fortnite of all things. I don't know if you're familiar with Fortnite, but I sure am with my 14 year old son playing. And I, and I just kind of chuckled to myself and I thought, wow, I'm, I'm really out of place here. They're, they're talking about video games and here I'm talking about joining the ARP here very soon. <laughs> so, uh, it was uh, it, it just something that I just kind of internally just kind of smiled and, and shook my head. And, and I actually, I, uh, I, I told that story to Aaron Rodgers back in, in Greenville um, in May. We were playing the Pro-Am event, the BMW tournament there in Greenville. And I was paired between Aaron Rodgers um, and the two guys that played on the U.S. Curling team that won the, the, curling team that won the gold medal. So every par five, it's, it's, it's playing slow. And, um, I get to one hole and I come up to Aaron Rodgers and we're talking and he kind of, we knew each other a little bit. We started talking about things as our, as our conversation switched to me playing with the younger kids. I, I mentioned that story to him and he said, well, funny enough, last year there were two rookies on the green Bay Packers on the offensive line that he wanted to take to dinner. And he, and the, then the two guys said, no, we're just going to get some pizza and go back and play Fortnite." And so Aaron, now he's a young guy anyway. But he, he kind of said the same thing. So we, we both had a good laugh about that. But, but that's just, uh, you know, circling back. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity. Um, you know, and as I've said on this show, I've, I've kind of got lost in a lot of, um, well, certainly a lot of self-pity, I suppose, for <clears throat> just the way my – I think the way that my end of my PJ Tour career has really kind of gone, um, some of it, is self-induced admittedly um some of it is just you know bad luck with the shoulder and my heart issue and stuff like that um you know losing both my parents it really took a lot out of me and to to be able to compete at a high level you really have to be all in and uh and i wasn't and i think and i and i blame myself for that so i don't blame um you know some of the things that have happened to me i think you, you know you've got to kind of pick up the pieces and you got to move on. And if you don't, you know, you get, you get lost in the shuffle kind of like I have, but, but I do look forward to playing, uh, you know, starting in February. So Sean, you played in the Barbasol classic back in July, shot a second round 69 and barely missed the cut at the PGA championship last month. So to that end, what's the state of your game? How, how, how are you, how are you approaching the fall to get geared up for January or February? Well, I've certainly been playing a lot, you know, going back to Kentucky. I mean, I, I played um, probably about as well as I could have played. I just didn't, I didn't make any putts. It was really kind of sad. And I think that's one of the things that I've noticed with my game 
is I'm not making the birdies that I used to make. Um, you know, whether that's nerves or whether that's just vision and not seeing the greens or lack of confidence or all three, who knows? But um, it was a bit disappointing there to to finish. I mean, I made the cut, but that, I should have played a lot better than that. And then the PGA, it's a t- it was a tough course for me. It was long. Um, you know, but, but, uh, you know, my game is actually okay. Um, but, but again, I think I've just kind of caught myself looking forward, uh, to age 50. And I think that's been some of the problem in that I've looked too far ahead. It kind of like these football teams looking ahead to their next opponent rather than playing the one they've got that particular day. And I've fallen prey to that for sure. But, um, you know, the state of my game's okay. Um, you know, just uh, I'm trying some new equipment, uh, maybe trying some trying some new shafts, uh, looking at some some golf balls and things like that. So I'm kind of in testing mode, and I'll probably do that for the next month or so. And then come October, middle of October, I'll probably head down to Florida and, and start practicing for a couple of months, getting ready. So, to you as you just mentioned, you know, looking at different shafts and balls and stuff like that. Are you a uh, are you an equipment uh, free agent right now, or what do you got going on in your bag? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I got a couple of things, uh, just a couple of new things. I and mean, Callaway's been great to me, and um, so I don't know what their plans are for adding any players next year. I mean, there's no significant money really out there on the Champions Tour, for, so it really allows a player like me to, you know, to really put something in the bag that maybe I I, I want to keep or I want to try something new. I mean, I just haven't decided that yet. Um, you know, I'm a loyal guy, so I'm I'm uh, always keen on staying at the same equipment that I've that I've used um, for the last couple of years. But but I don't know if I'm going to do that for sure. So um, I'm just trying out a couple of different things, and and uh, you know we'll kind of see where that takes you over the next month, month and a half, and then by the you know like I said by the middle of October, early November, I'll I'll probably be decided on what I'm going to do. Do you have the uh, rogue driver in your bag? Are you are you uh, are you hitting that off the tee? No, no. I'm still I'm still using the epic driver. Um, you know, I have a couple of rogues. Um, um, and it's, it's a great great piece of equipment. But I just have been very happy with my epic and uh, really haven't found any reason to change. So, Sean, a couple of more before we let you go, and you know, going back to this year's PGA Championship. What were your impressions of Bell Reeve? You said it was a little, you know, it was a long course for you. What'd you think of it overall? Well, I mean, I thought it was a great design. Um, you know, they were hampered by, you know, the hot weather that we've had here in the South for, you know, the majority of the summer. Um, I actually got there a couple of days early and played on Saturday night. And to be honest, I was pretty, pretty surprised. Uh, even though it was a Saturday that, you know, and typically the greens aren't at tournament speed by on Saturday, but they were nowhere near where I thought they needed to be, um, even for a Saturday. But look, they did a great job. The course was in phenomenal shape, and um, you know, I think that that course will stay in the rotation when they when they move it back to May next year. I think it'll be beautiful. Um, it, it was long, a lot of movement. Uh, you know, number ten was five oh eight, fifteen was. Or 14 is 495, or I guess that's 15. Uh, number four was 520 yards, all par fours. So, uh, you know, and obviously there were, the fairways were wider, but 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 it uh, it just was such a long course. You weren't getting a whole lot of roll, so everything was about carry there. Um, but my impressions were very positive. I thought they uh, it's a great layout. Um, I didn't know what to expect when I went there. I thought it was a kind of a smaller type 
venue. Um, and so I got out there and just see how spread out it really was. But they did a phenomenal job. The PG of America always does such a great job. And, um, you know, they always got a, always get a great champion, and they did this year in Brooks. And, uh, wow, I mean, what a weekend it was. I mean, the fans were spectacular. Um, I had my family there, and my daughter and my son were hanging around, and every time I'd, you know, get to the next tee, they were telling me why I needed why, why I wasn't hitting it straighter. You know, I visited the rough a few too many times, and they let me know it. But it was fun. It was fun. And I had a good pairing with uh, Y.E. And, and Jason Duffner. And, you know, we all missed the cut. But, but um, you know, for me, it really wasn't about that. It was just, uh, you know, sharing that, that, that time with my family. And, and uh, of course, I was grinding to play well. But it just, it just proved to be too much of a challenge to play from the rough. How do you feel about next year's tournament being moved back from August to May? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of question marks in there. I mean, you know, next year we're going to Beth page. Um, not sure what it's like in May in New York. I'm sure it'll be, I'm sure it'll be just fine. I mean, I, uh, I mean, look, I'm envisioning, uh, not snow covered fairways, but definitely, um, kind of a wetter, wet, more wet conditions. Uh, certainly a long golf course. Um, so it's hard to say. You know, Rochester comes back into play in uh, – well, actually, it comes into play next year for me in May because that's I mean, my first senior PGO being Rochester the very next week. But you look at, Ro- at Rochester back in May um, again in 2023, it's hard to say. I mean, it's uh, easy to sit here and uh, quarterback it without, without playing one in May. Um, it may turn out just fine. I worry about places like Whistling Straits and and uh, and a few other places, but um, I think they did the best. They made the best decision for them, um, and they're just going to kind of let it play out. And um, look, everybody's going to show up. They may be they may just be wearing sweaters. <laughs> right, Sean. Before <laughs> indeed. So, Sean, before we let you go, remind our listeners about the work you do for the local Make-A-Wish Foundation there in Memphis. Well, Stephanie and I actually, um, we we started the tournament in uh, 2004. It was our first year with Make-A-Wish. I've been a big supporter of theirs and and really all the Make-A-Wish communities uh, around the country. Um, And um, actually, Stephanie and I turned that event over over to them uh, this year. I I just kind of found myself had so much going on. Um, so I don't have my name on the tournament anymore, but, but, uh, I'm still involved with them and still communicate with them and try to help the kids, um, as best as I can. And, um, you know, I've always been a huge supporter of of St. Jude children's research hospital. Um, you know, it's almost a lifelong Memphian. That's, uh, just kind of part of my fiber now, I guess, uh, trying to help the kids. So, uh, you know, our 14 years were incredible. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about my kids, and I certainly learned a lot about the children of St. Of Jude, Make-A-Wish, and the families and, that are affected with these diseases. So, um, you know, it just keep on making money and earning money, trying to make those kids smile, and uh, that's what it's all about. Yes, it is. Well, Sean, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. Let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, whether it's online or it's on social media? Yeah, well, I haven't posted much, but I'm. Uh, you can find me at Sean McKeel PGA, and uh, I'm on Facebook too. Although I don't post a whole lot, I've kind of gotten a little, little off social media for a while. But um, anyway, that's where you can find me. So, um, 
always willing to answer any question that you have. Sean, again, thank you so much for being a part of the show. I've missed spending time with you. I'm so glad that we had an opportunity to catch up a little bit tonight. I hope you'll come back and uh, be a part of the show as we head into the fall and as we uh, get uh, prepared to watch you out on the uh, Champions Tour. I can't wait for that to happen. Yeah, Chris, thanks. I appreciate everything you do, too. Sean, take care. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Sounds good. Take care. See you, Sean. That's 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeel and uh, just one of the most wonderful people you'll meet on this planet. So has always done a, a lot for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And then, as I, as I say, folks, at the top, one of the most underappreciated players, maybe in the history of golf, and we could certainly talk about that with my next guest, Peter Kessler, when he joins me here in a moment. But uh, a guy that, uh, you know, very nearly was a two-time major champion, again, Finished second to Tiger at the 2006 PGA and, and uh, finished second at the 2006 World Match Play Championship after defeating Tiger in the first round. So Sean has done a lot of great things. Very much looking forward to rooting for him when he is out on the Champions Tour come next January or February. All right. Before I get to my next guest, Peter Kessler, I, I want to give a shout out to a couple of our sponsors. First, you know, I've been telling you guys for the last several months uh, how excited I am about the new weapon I have in my golf bag, and that's the new M4 driver from TaylorMade Golf. And if you haven't tried their new twist face technology, you're missing out. I don't know about you, but I don't hit every shot in the center of the face, right? And after studying hundreds of thousands of swings from pros and amateurs like us, TaylorMade designed their new drivers to help protect us from our miss hits and give us straighter distance. So whether your miss is on the low heel or the high toe. Twist face helps bring the ball back to center, keeping the distance that we want and finding the fairways more often. I'm hitting more fairways than I ever have. And the new drivers are also the choice of some pretty good golfers you might recognize. Twist face is played by Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, Jason Day, John Rahm, Justin Rose, to name just a few. And they're dominating the top 10 out on tour. If you haven't tried twist face, go hit it and get fit. It's in the new M3 and M4 drivers and only from TaylorMade. I also want to give a shout out to our friends at Superspeed Golf. Now used by over half of the tour players in the world, Superspeed Golf is the fastest and most effective way to increase your swing speed. Three eight-minute sessions per week are going to add 5% increase to your swing speed. With sets of, you know, for golfers of all ages, over one year of included video instruction as well, Superspeed offers a complete solution to help you start bombing it off the tee. Visit them online at superspeedgolf.com and pick up your set today. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at pgatoursuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. And now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is one of my favorite guests of all time. But, you know, not just as a guest, but just one of my favorite people on the planet of all time. And that is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Be sure to follow Peter on his Facebook page or over on Twitter at Peter Kessler. Also, be sure to check out Peter's website, peterkessler.com, to book him for an event and to listen to some of the archive episodes of his, his podcast, which is called Reading the Break, which is fantastic, folks. You can also link to it from our site, nextonthetea.net. We've got a link right over there back to Peter's site. And no one knows the history of golf better than Peter does. Among the many great quotes that I've heard about Peter over the years, and again, thankful that Peter's been a part of the show for several years now, I want to share two quotes with you. 
if you weren't fortunate enough to see Peter's show, Golf Talk Live, when it was on the Golf Channel, it was by far the best golf talk show ever. And Golf World Magazine accurately called Peter Golf's Walter Cronkite. No better way to describe Peter than that. And almost a year ago to the day, PGA.com put together Golf's seven greatest commercials and infomercials. And the Perfect Club, which was at the forefront of the hybrid revolution, a company Peter founded and was president and chief club tester for, PGA.com said Peter is one of the greatest storytelling voices in, in, in the history of the world. Again, no better way to describe Peter than that. I couldn't agree more with all of that. And I thank Peter for coming back on the show. Hey, Peter, how are you, my friend? Where did you see this thing about the golf club? <laughs> I saw it on PGA.com. Seriously, that's wild. How are you, buddy? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing fine. It's nice to hear your voice, and it's always a pleasure to be with you. What's going on? Ah, well, you know, I, I wanted to start our time. To, obviously, tonight being, or today being September the 11th, a very difficult day for all of us. I wanted to start by getting your memories of this day 17 years ago. Well, I remember it just as vividly as I remember the Kennedy assassination. I was 11 years old, almost 12 years old when that happened in November of 1963, and I was in sixth grade, and I had one of the first transistor radios that had a little ear plug that you could put in, and I was uh, at my desk, and I was listening to music through the little ear pod in class, which I shouldn't have been, when the music stopped and an announcement came that the president had been shot. So I put my transistor radio away, and then a moment later, a teacher walked into the room and whispered to my teacher, and then we were told what happened, and we were let go, and we went home. And I spent that weekend alone. My parents were away, and I remember watching everything on television as it unfolded, of course, and then, you know, uh, Jack Ruby uh, killing Lee Harvey Oswald on the Sunday a couple of days later. And so that was, you know, no, everybody who was alive then remembers exactly where they were. And for young people like me, you know, a month later, the Beatles hit. And so for young people, there was a, a quick, renewed sense of optimism in the land which spawned a whole generation of activity. But it was so amazing that one of the most horrible things that's happened in our history should then be, you know, a, a moment later um, set aside for a young group of people by something that was brand new in the world and is as important today as it was when the Beatles first hit the scene in late 1963. So it was quite an amazing time. And and this, of course, September 11th of 2001, I was home, and like other people, um, somebody called me, and we turned on the TV, and then I hooked up with the people at the Golf Channel, and they told me that ultimately I could make the decision and as to whether we would do a live show that night. And, you know, I thought about, you know, how Broadway theater went on during the wars, and they played baseball during the war, and they still had golf tournaments during the war, and they still had entertainment, and I thought... Should we do entertainment? I just thought that this was so cataclysmic, an event with so many pe people lost. And at that point, it was so early on in the proceedings that there was so much more information to come. And so it was unfolding at that moment. So I said, let's not do a show out of respect. And so we didn't. And then it was curious that a few weeks later, they uh, one, then, of course, they canceled the Ryder Cup, so it was supposed to be in the odd year, and that's why it's in even years now. 
but they didn't cancel the first Dunhill Links, which I went to play in just a few weeks later in Great Britain, and people wondered if they should fly over. And that was preceded by an event I was invited to put on by Prince Albert of Monaco, probably the last week of September of 01. And I went over for that, and there were, turned out, a thousand people, and Gary Player was there, and they built a par three-hole. This was all for charity, so it had been long organized, and so they changed the focus to what had happened on September 11th, and they constructed in the middle of town a par three-hole of about 115 yards, literally in town, and put the green in front of the Monte Carlo Casino and put the tee about 100 yards back, and Gary Player was there and all kinds of people there, and Gary's hitting shots, and we had already known each other at that point, so we had a great time. And and so it's the, the comes to be the Saturday night, and it's the black tie dinner, and there's a 1,000 people. And somebody comes to me at the beginning of the dinner and says, would you give the after-dinner speech? And I said, well, nobody said anything. I said, you know, we're just sitting down at dinner. This is something I would have spent, you know, a day writing. And they said, oh, please, you know, whatever comes to you. And so I said, okay. So I I went up and I, I said some things and I, you know, tried to remember what Roosevelt said about uh, December 7th, 1941, a day that would live in infamy. And and I thought about patents in the movie saying we're going to hold them by the nose and kick them in the ass. And and I just thought about, you know, we're not going to let anything ever interfere ultimately with our freedom. And there were people in this room from all over the world, which they were. So, I, yeah, I, and, and I found myself half the time looking down and seeing Roger Moore, the actor, sitting right in front of me in front of the stage and. Um, and I tried to get with him later because he was on a TV show in the very early 1960s um, with a woman named Dorothy Provine. I think it was called 20th Century. And he played this this kind of gambler type, uh, riverboat gambler type called Johnny Angel. And the woman was stunning. And I'd always wanted to ask about the woman. And for some reason, I hadn't met him, even though I probably would have thought I would have luckily enough to be in some of the circles I bounced around in. So I did talk to him later. But so I gave that speech and then I went up and played in the Dunhill Links and the week was dedicated to um, all of the people, you know, who had been killed on September 11th. And um, there were moments of silence and, and flag lowerings and yet celebrating the game of golf. It was uh, it was quite an amazing time. Peter, thank you very much for sharing those stories. Yeah, it it was an amazing time and an amazingly sad time for, for so many, and our thoughts and prayers are certainly with the, the families and for the folks that were impacted uh, directly by, you know, the events that day. Peter, I want to switch gears a little bit, and as we look ahead to next week's Tour Championship, a guy who's not going to be there is Jordan Spieth. Finished outside the top 30 for the first time in his career. Got five top 10 finishes this season in 23 events, but no wins. Curious to get your thoughts on uh, on what you've seen so far from Jordan this season. I think he's the new Phil Mickelson, quite frankly. I, I, you know, I feel like based on what we've seen that he's going to have like two or three spectacular weeks a year, and then he's going to hit it short and he's going to hit it crooked and his week, his grip's going to be a little too weak and he's going to, discombobulate and hit the wrong club, like at the Open Championship on the sixth hole at Carnoustie, which was insane. 
I mean, here he is in the last round with the lead, playing a tight par five. I played it 20 times, so I know the whole cold. And all the way down the left side is OB. It's fairly tight, and the ground is hard. So if you if you hit one that's running to the left, there's a good chance it'll just keep running until you're in big trouble. And and then if you try to go towards the green, there's a little thing of water, and and there's and there's a big, big, big gorse bush to the right, which ultimately he found. And everywhere is trouble. And he took out a three wood on a downhill side hill lie with a little clump of grass behind it. And I was talking to my oldest son on the phone, and I said, "This has." eight written all over it. And he said, no way. I said, for $1, I'll bet you he makes it. And he made an eight. And of course, that's when the Golf Channel elected not to show you the end of the hole because they put it on a split screen exactly when Tiger was taking the lead and Jordan Spieth was losing the lead. But never mind. I just feel like Jordan's a little bit inconsistent. You know, he's not long enough to get away with some stuff that the longer guys can get away with. And you know, and the longer guys not only get away with it, but they use it to their advantage because they hit it so far that they just have scoring clubs last, left. And, you know, and Jordan's, you know, one one beat shorter in distance than they are. And he's a little more crooked than some of the guys who were a little bit longer. I, I would bet you statistically, without looking it up, that Rory, who's significantly longer, is probably also quite a bit straighter. And that puts Jordan at a great disadvantage. And of course, he hasn't putted well this year. He didn't putt particularly well last year, so he's been trending poorly with that over the last few years and is very, very streaky now, I would say, in that regard. And I think he's got a lot of tension when I see him arrange himself over his putts, and he misses putts that he shouldn't be missing, that recreational golfers don't miss. The the six-inch thing was crazy, Bill. I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen anybody do that, like ever, 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 go up, like, no matter how bad Mrs. Dinkowitz in her first round did not wave over the top of a six-inch putt. So, yeah, I, I don't know what to make of Jordan. Here he is not in the Tour Championship. Um, obviously, you know, he's going to be, you know, playing in the Ryder Cup, and, and uh, you know, he's he's probably a fun guy in the locker room. But at the end of the day, you start to play good golf, and nobody knows who's going to play how when they get over there. But, yes, it's been a curious year, but unfortunately – I'm not so sure this isn't the Jordan we're going to see going forward, a streaky kind of a guy. And Peter, as you mentioned, you know, coming up on the Ryder Cup, right? Two years ago, he and Patrick Reed were teamed together. And it seemed like Patrick carried Jordan on just about every hole, because I don't recall Jordan playing that well a couple of years ago. So do you expect Furyk to pair them together again, or do you think you should pair him with someone else, someone that might be able to get him going, whether that's a and, you know, his good friend, Justin Thomas, or maybe a Phil or even a Tiger. Does he need to switch that up to find some sort of uh, fire or excitement or something to kind of maybe snap Jordan out of it and get him going? I don't think there's any such thing as that, because, you know, remember, this isn't a group of promising 12 year old players. I mean, these are 20 of the 25 best players in the world, of which Jordan's among them. So. You know, this isn't a thing where, you know, something, you know, has to happen. You know, Payne Stewart, you know, playing born in the USA to bother the Europeans. That's, you know, that that kind of thing might get you going. But, you know, in terms of, you know, who he's going to play with or who he's not going to play with, nobody knows anything about anything about anything. Nobody knows how they're going to play tomorrow. Nobody knows how they're going to play in France. Nobody knows how they're going to feel. Nobody knows if they're going to be 
all making their best swings. That's why they let them play. There isn't such a thing as figuring out the winner, even though earlier this year my son came to me and he said he's in a pool. And I said, "Well, I don't believe in picking winners. I just like I just want I, I said, I just think like think of it as a movie. I just want to watch it unfold. I don't want to worry about the ending. I don't want to pick for people. I don't want to say some guy's going to make a double or he's going to make six, but nobody knows." So I said, "All right, what's going on in the pool?" And he said, "Well, I'm 36. Can you take a look this week?" So meanwhile, I've done six of the seven last seven weeks and now we're third in the pool with only one week to go. And he has two picks for the Tour Championship, and we I made him save Bubba for some reason, because maybe Bubba wasn't playing good at the time or something. I think we got Bubba and Keegan next week, and he's in third place. And so, you know, if he can, if he can, if he can hold this spot, we'll uh, uh, have a great dinner. And But the problem with this whole betting business is, and the problem with this whole who do you think is going to win business is, is you become emotionally invested in your pick. Like on some of the weeks where I would make a pick for Christopher and the pick wasn't playing well, it detracted from my ability to enjoy the event unfolded because my guy wasn't doing well, so I wasn't appreciating what was actually happening as much as I might. And luckily, I kept picking winners. I picked Molinari, I picked Brooks Kepka, I picked uh, Bryson when he won last week. I just it was crazy, but um, but you, yes, you become emotionally invested. So all of this stuff with FanDuel and all of these other things, I'm I'm violently against because. I think it takes away from your enjoyment of watching the thing unfold. It's like saying, you know, there's going to be a murder mystery, and here's who's in it. You go, oh, yeah, you know, who, who do you think, you know, you don't do that. You just you just let it happen. So that's how I feel about watching golf. And, Peter, with the timing of the captain's picks, you know, that was set up. We had three coming a couple of weeks ago, and then the last pick coming yesterday. Do you think, did Furyk get it right with Tiger, Phil, Bryson, and now Tony Fino? Oh, yeah. I mean, if he hadn't picked those guys, I mean, really, you would just, you know, take them in the back room and kick the stuffing out of them. I mean, <laughs> there was no possible other way to go. On the other hand, my friend Thomas did not do a good job. Okay. You can, you, you totally, you know, can go with Poulter and Stenson. You know, Poulter, or, you know, we don't need to go through all the reasons, but net, net, he's a positive for this situation. I don't believe that much in, you know, the, the spiritual leader and all that garbage because they have to go out and actually hit the shots. The spiritual nothing will make a 12-footer for you. You know, it just take, has nothing to do with anything that happened in the locker room. It's unrelated. And so, uh, yeah, so I think uh, I think Thomas made uh, two, two big mistakes. I think um, – yeah, I think, you know, so you got to take Poulter for a million good reasons. And he won this year, and he's playing good golf, and da, 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 and he's great on the team and whatever. You know, and Stenson, too, even though he hasn't been exactly knocking him dead, but he's still a world-class player. No way with Paul Casey. He's a weekend disaster. He's like Ricky Fowler. Those guys play a great 36 holes at places. What the hell happened to him on the weekend? It was like Webb Simpson. I had picked him one week for Christopher, too, and I was like on this big run. And Simpson was leading after 36, and then he finished like last or something. It was insane. You know, and some of these guys, I said, I don't want to pick that guy. He's not going to be reliable. And that's how I feel about Paul Casey in the Ryder Cup. I totally feel that way about Sergio. I could beat Sergio right now. Well, it'd be very close. I mean, he's not playing, you know, world-class golf right now. I mean, 
you know, he hasn't done anything in a while, and his putting is atrocious. I've never seen so many different strokes over the course of 18 holes. I mean, I knew when I tried to putt that I think to myself, what's the ideal stroke for this exact putt? And that every putt, therefore, is going to be a little bit different. You're not always making the same stroke. You, you know, you one you may want to change your tempo, or you, or you, you, you want to be, you may want to be a little firmer without hitting it eight feet by. I mean, just you know, each putt is unto itself, and I just feel like he is disasterville from all distances, and you know, and he's got some stuff working inside of four feet that's really unwatchable, and so yes, very bad pick, and he should have picked Rafa Cabrera Bayo because. He played really good in 16, and he's been playing good golf, and he played good the last few weeks, and you want somebody who's playing good. That's the only thing that you can do is to pick somebody who's playing good right this minute. So, like, when we were betting, you know, in this pool with my son, I picked, you know, Bryson had won the week before, and I said to Christopher, you know what? You haven't picked him yet. Let's take him next week. He's young. He could actually win again, and lo and behold, he actually ended up doing it. But there's no way to know these things. You can make some guesses and stuff. And that's usually because there's 156 guys in the golf tournament. So, yeah. So I so that yeah, the Casey thing, Disasterville on the weekend, Sergio Disasterville overall on paper, because it's two teams instead of 156 players, which to me is 156 teams. This time you actually have two teams, and I think the Americans on paper are favored if the guys generally play their game, but nobody knows if they're going to do that. So to to just take that a half a step further, right? Because the European team's got five rookies, right? Five Ryder Cup rookies on their squad. Does that play into anything? Do you, do you take into consideration having been there, been in that arena, had that experience, or does that mean nothing? I think it's completely a nothing because – you know, after they hit a shot or two, that's all over. I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't carry on through the week. You know, you know, if you're in a, if, you, if you're ever in a play and in, in school or on Broadway or anywhere where you do live television, you know, um, I, 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 I lost my train of thought. What the hell did you just ask me there, Chris? <laughs> About the Ryder Cup rookies. Does that make any impact? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, you know, there there may come a moment, you know, when you're the lawyer and you say, may it please the court. And, you know, you might be nervous until you get that first phrase out. Or when I did TV or when you do radio and you say, hi, this is Chris Mescare. Once you get that first thing out, you know, then you're off and sailing. And the same thing is true, you know, for professionals in uncomfortable situations in that it doesn't remain uncomfortable. So, you know, John, my happy, my friend, I we were doing an interview on TV once, and I said, so what was it like on the first tee of the first Ryder Cup of the whole deal? And he goes, oh, man, he goes, I stood over that ball, and he went, I was trying to figure out how you move the club away and up into the sky. And he said, then I was going to try to figure out how you make it go forward and hit the ball and keep going. He said, it was insane. He said, and then it was fine. So, that's the thing. Then it's fine. But the matches are only 18 holes, and you don't want to lose a couple of holes early because you you know, you know, came out of a shot because you were a little nervous or whatever. But, you know, they're playing in Paris. It's a very weird dynamic. I mean, I don't know what kind of crowds are going to be there. I think there's going to be a lot of curious people, as many as are going to be like actual golfers. I wonder how many people actually come in from Great Britain to watch that. How many people will come from the rest of the continent to Paris? I mean, it's a big schlep from wherever you are. And, 
in, in in Europe to you know to show up at this golf course. So I don't know how crowded it's going to be. I don't know how vocal it's going to be, and it's certainly not going to hurt the Europeans because the people in the crowd, well, whoever's there, are going to cheer for those five rookies and they're going to boo the you know our rookies and. You know, but that lasts for two seconds, and then they're going down the first fairway, and then it's quiet and it's peaceful, and the caddies just relax, take a deep breath. We're cool. We got a ball in play, you know, and then and then they play. I mean, even Jack Nicklaus is nervous on the first tee. Think about Tiger Woods. He's nervous in every tournament he plays on the first tee. Think how many bad tee shots we have watched him hit Augusta National in the last, you know, whatever, you know, since the last time he won. How many times has he hit it absolutely dead left after he's striping it on the range and one foot cuts, one foot draws, and then snap a Rue City, you know, all the way down into the middle of the ninth fairway, and he's got to hit it over those trees. Completely insane. So, you know, guys get nervous. Jack handled it great. Tiger couldn't control the swing after his peak years as well when he got nervous. But Jack was always able to control his swing no matter how nervous he was. And he, you know, figured that he was as nervous as everybody else, but that he was more likely to keep playing his game than other guys were likely to play their game. And he just felt if he just kept doing it, eventually everybody else, the ride would be too fast for the gang. Peter, away from the Ryder Cup, I want to get your thoughts on Brooks Kepka. Guy's got a very odd record. Four wins on tour, three of which are majors. We would typically expect to see someone with three majors with at least close to double-digit tournament wins, but not having the majority of your wins being a major. What do you make of, of Kepka's record? Well, you have to take into account the fact that he's played a bunch of international golf, and he's won in some other places. And so he's probably a more hardened competitor than his tour win total would suggest, forgetting that three of the four are major championships. But, you know, so, you know, he did kind of what Peter Uline did, did a lot of stuff in Europe, did a lot of stuff in other parts of the world. Um, you know, so he came to this tour late-ish, and he's, what, 28 still right now. And so, you know, the last 15 months have been super-duper. And, you know, I don't understand the world golf rankings because, when a fellow can come to the final hole of a golf tournament, do bad things, and then go to a playoff and do worse things, then they go, congratulations, you're number one. And I go, whoa, 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 whoa. What did Justin <laughs> Rose do to get to number one? He won a world golf championship. He didn't. He hasn't won a major since 13. And this other fellow, Brooks, has just won three in the last 15 months. For sure, that makes you number one. Whatever the system is, it's a not good. Three majors, 15 months, nobody else on the on that scoreboard with you. You're the number one player in the world. It's not even like a maybe. So you know that thing is a complete nutso. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think that the, I think that Brooks is going to win a lot of golf tournaments because it's a really really good golf swing. And yes, he's you know he's he, he's in great shape and he's very athletic, but he's not a linebacker. He's you know really built for a golfer, but he's not really built for a linebacker. But you know the dude's a stud and. You know, and very much like Dustin Johnson and these guys, you know, I think Dustin's going to last a while and he's probably a young 35. But I, you know, Brooks has got three majors and Dustin only has one. And I would definitely take Brooks's record of four wins and three majors and Dustin's 19 wins and one major for sure, for sure. Especially given the seven year, you know, age differential of Brooks being younger. So I think he's going to keep winning golf tournaments. It's I don't know how consistent a putter he will or won't be long term. I, in my view, there isn't enough evidence. To me, 
to me, the paper trail is only 15 months old. And yeah, he's obviously putted great. You don't win three majors, you know, without looking up the statistics. If he didn't putt great, it's not doable. So, you know, so we know he's been putting good, and we know he's been doing it for a little over a year for sure. And we know he's won in other places in the world, so he's probably a good putter. So, you know, if he can keep doing that, um, and he can keep hitting his scoring clubs and his wedges the way we've seen him hit in the last 15, 16 months, you know, he, you know, he's got a chance to do, you know, some amazing things. Now, you know, you can't say now he, you know, he's on track to now win so many majors over some period of time. Again, it doesn't work like that. Nobody knows. Nobody knows how anybody's going to play. You know, Dustin Johnson goes over to the Open Championship in Great Britain, you know, and like, you know, everybody's, you know, writing, oh, he's going to win by 100 shots and this and that and the other thing. And he had lobwidge into every hole, you know, for 36 holes, and he missed the cut. I mean, you just don't know how anybody's going to play. You know, Rory McIlroy being favorite at the Masters is so insane. You get on the second tee and you aim down the left center and you're trying to hit a cut. If you snap it, you make a triple bogey eight. That's the way that hole sets up. You make a triple bogey eight in the first round, bye-bye. That's why I say nobody knows anything about anything. But I do think that based on form, Brooks Kepka is going to keep playing some good golf, and I think he's very interested in doing it. I'd like to see a little personality, though. You know, it still is entertainment. You know, they they are entertainers, even though they are professional athletes. They are entertainers, you know, and some of the athletes, you know, believe that. And, you know, you know Joe Namath and Muhammad Ali and Arnold Palmer and Seve Ballesteros and Tiger Woods, they get the entertainment part. Tommy Bolt understood that only so well and uh so i'd like to see you know you could give me a little personality you know the light a firecracker near his you know behind and let's get going here a little bit but um yeah but i like him and he seems like a really solid guy but you know you could be more interesting and you can give us better answers at the press conferences i really believe they should be giving thoughtful answers to the to the scribes who are sitting there, and none of this one sentence stuff or asking guys to leave and you know and acting badly. You know, I thought the Serena thing was absolutely disgraceful. I, you know, just had nothing to do with women's rights or the fact that she had a baby. She just blew it. You know, I, I, I it's funny. I, that great expression I just heard that Australian expression that she spit the dummy. And that's exactly what she did. And the dummy is a baby's pacifier in Australia. So the baby spits the pacifier, which is called the dummy, so it can then cry. And that's exactly what Serena did. You know, she spit the, she spit the thing. So she just lost control. It wasn't about anything else. The guy was handcuffed. Once she got the warning, even though she didn't see the coaching sign, but that's not the thing. If the guy makes the sign, it counts, even if she's looking the other direction. Then when she busted the racket and she got the point, the guy's in a no-win position. He can't give her a soft, you know, I'm, I'm going to take a game away if you keep it up, because she kept it up. And I just thought that was bad behavior. And every time that she's done this, it's because she was losing. I remember one year she played Kim Clijsters, and it was and it was a deuce. Uh, no, it was it was match point Kim Clijsters, and 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 Serena went completely crazy, and they awarded Kim the point, and that was the end of the set, and then the end of the match because it was match point. You know she's done that before, and she threatened to stick a tennis ball down some woman's throat and told somebody else that she was sick inside. So you know there's a pattern here. So I was I don't know how I got on that, but I thought that was very <laughs> bad behavior. Um, and I, and you like people to have 
good behavior like Brooks does and to be interesting to. Being interesting would be really cool. Peter, I want to switch you over and talk a little bit about Tiger. And we're some we're seeing some things from him that we're not used to seeing. First, you know, he's back in contention every week, so that's the glasses half full view. And after you know all the things he's been through, it's a tremendous accomplishment. The glasses half empty says he's been in position to win several times, but we're seeing him falter on the back nine. Last five or six holes left to play, we're starting to see some things that we're not used to seeing from him. Do you think that's something that will just you know, it'll come back around as he gets to play more and he's in contention more, or is it a sign of something else? Well, first of all, a lot of guys who play pro golf would take Tiger's year, you know, finishing what uh, tied sixth at the open where he had the lead and, you know, and finishing second at the PGA championship, contending on a regular basis, going back in my view to being the best iron player, uh, figuring out a way to generally keep the ball in play. Uh, he's certainly not making enough putts, and he's not doing the clutch gene thing that he used to do so well. You know, the the 10-footer that keeps the round together for par, the 10-footer that make, lets you accelerate for birdie. You know, he's not doing those things. And he reminds me of, recreational golfer who's trying to break 80 for the first time in the sense that, you know, you get to, you know, there's some, you know, if you're trying to break 80 for the first time um, and you just need three fives to do it, you're bound to make two sixes and a five and, and not break 80 because you're thinking about it and you know what you have to do to do it. And eventually you learn that those holes that you otherwise would have easily made three fours on if it wasn't to break 80, you learn how to play them better. And so I feel like Tiger's there right now that he's like right around the last few holes of key rounds that just needs to knit together. You know, in my view, when you look over somebody's sort of four-round scorecard fast, there's always a there's always a place where the thing happened. You know, you look at Jack Nicklaus winning in 1986 at the Augusta National for his sixth Masters. You know, you, you take a look at the card. The thing happened on the last 10 holes when he made seven birdies in the last 10 holes. There's usually like a streak in the thing. I remember when Arnold and I were talking about it. Uh, yesterday was his birthday, God bless him. And we were talking about uh, one of the British Opens that he won. And it was the worst weather he'd ever played in. He buried like six out of seven holes. And I remember him saying, and if it wasn't for that stretch, I wouldn't have won the tournament. I never forgot that. You know, and I realized that, you know, that you look for a place in the event where the guy might have sealed it or the guy might have saved it or the guy might have, you know, early Saturday morning before things really got going, make six birdies in a row to put himself right in the middle stuff. You know, you, you just never know how stuff's going to happen. And so, Tiger's at that place where he's not doing that that little magical run. He's not doing the thing where he's finishing with, you know, five threes at some point instead of a messier kind of scorecard. He's just the, the magic part is missing in the key moments. And I think it's recoverable. I don't think there's anything wrong with him. I I think I think again, it's like the break eighty thing. He just had to He's just learning how to do it again. In my view, he hasn't really played golf in you know, five years. I mean, so what, you know, what give the, you know, it's like, this is great what he's doing so far. And, you know, if he can come this far, 
he can't go farther. You know, if somebody said to me, well, this is as good. How do you know this is as good as he can do? Why Why wouldn't it continue to get better? It's continued to get better. He played a good final round last weekend. And, you know, and he's go, you know, and he's in the top 30. I mean, you know, it's not like he's just missed the top 125, everybody. I mean, you know, here he is, you know, going into the tour championship. So, you know, and, and playing some super golf. So, yes, I think he's totally going to figure out that eight, 10 holes over the course of 72 where the thing's got to be turned on its head, where you have the four birdies in a row instead of the mess and a couple other things like that, where you make the three 10 footers in a round for pars to go with the seven birdies instead of negating three of the seven. So I think he's going to be able to do it. I certainly think he's capable of it. I love the golf swing he's making, except I just wish he would just, have a little slower transition on his on his tee shots. I mean, when you watch his iron play, it's a much more three quarters more move. Even when there's a lot of energy, when it's when he doesn't get it right on the tee, I just feel like you know the the, the club face doesn't have a chance to rotate back to square when it gets to the hitting area. That he's just like got so much downward pressure instead of allowing the pressure to occur at or feeling like even past the ball. You know, like I know we used to because we talked about it, that the fast moment occurred real late, that the the whoosh was when the club was getting close to your left shoulder on the through move. And, and I don't feel like he's doing that on his tee shots when he's, when he's having problems with them. I just feel like there's a direct line from his hands at the top of the swing back to the ball instead of his hands going down then forward, then through, and up and around. You know, on his iron swings, his arms go up, then they go down, and not much faster than the speed of gravity. As Jones has dropped at 34 feet per second, gravity's 32. And then forward, he does that beautifully in his iron play, but with his driver, it's a more of a straight line. It doesn't go down before it goes forward. And, and that's called, a, you know, you're going to have a glancing blow. He knows that. Because I know if I know that, and I know I've talked to him about these things before, he knows it a billion times better than I do. It's just that I'm here articulating it on his behalf. But I know what the trouble is, and and anybody who plays golf and has watched Tiger for a while can see it too. It's not, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one with this view. You can you you can see it. You know, you know. As a viewer, when he makes the bad move on the tee shot, you know it went right before they say it went right because we all play golf and we know how it works. And Peter, you hit the nail on the head with one of your recent tweets. Again, follow Peter on, on Twitter, at Peter Kessler. You said, we've gone from DJ being an all-time great to Brooks Kepka being the most dominant player in golf to Bryson DeChambeau being the best player in the world in about a 75-day span. Is that our collective ADD on full display or how quick you know we're ready to crown a guy based solely on what happened about 10 minutes ago? Well, that's why I said the thing with Justin Rose being number one player is really laughable because it it was a tournament that he lost and played very badly at the end. And and then you hold up his record and you go, well, okay, maybe it's no surprise. Here's a guy about 40 years old, won nine times on the PGA Tour, and now it's 10 times and one major championship. Well, that's halfway. That's halfway to being considered one of the best of your time, let alone uh, World Golf Hall of Fame eligibility consideration, in my view. 
20 and 2 would be the very least. To me, it's really 20 and 3. And Justin Rose is halfway there. Why? Because he does things like he did to finish this most recent golf tournament. So, um, And he's only got one major championship. And so he's not an all-time great. And he's not one of the best players of his time because of that record. So for him to be number one with Brooks Koepka just winning three major championships is the height of absurdity. None of these guys, in my view, are going to be number one for more than 15 or 20 minutes because it's really just revolving chairs at this point. You know, there there isn't a Tiger. There isn't a Jack. You know, if you look at Jack playing in majors from 1970 through – 1980. So that's 44 majors. So out of 44 majors, he won 10 of those 44 and he finished second eight times. And out of the 44, he finished top 10, 37 out of 44 times. And that's what you call some pretty good golf, you know, 10 out of 44 wins majors and eight seconds. That's good. So that's what you call the two hardest things to do in all of golf, which are the, hard, the, the second hardest thing to do in all of golf is to have a chance to win major championships like Jacks did 37 of those 44 majors between 1970 through 1980. The hardest thing to do is obviously to win a whole bunch of them, as Jack did 10 of those and, and eight others, of course, both some before and, and some, some after. And so, uh, you know, then you had Tiger, who was capable of doing basically the same thing, we don't have that anymore. We don't have anybody who's that good. We don't have anybody who's that consistent. Uh, and and I can't make an evaluation as to whether there any of the guys who are at the top ranks want to put in what it takes to be the number one. Is there somebody who's going to like claw and dig for that? You know, I, I don't know that that's the case. So I feel like it's completely musical chairs at this point. Jordan Spieth's a great example, very Phil Mickelson-like year, actually worse than a Phil Mickelson-like year because Phil won this year and Jordan didn't win this year. And um, Phil's actually, I think, probably played better. And um, and Jordan, you know, uh, is inconsistent. And again, he's short and crooked and he's not putting good. And so those are all problematic things. And he's got some course management, emotional decision-making issues, I think, Uh Dustin Johnson, I don't know how much he cares. I don't know how bright he is or is not. I don't know how much it matters or not. Um, but at the age of 35, you're supposed to have more than one major to go with your 19 victories. So I would say, you know, that's not an all-time great. But, you are you know, you pick up two more majors, and all of a sudden we're talking turkey. Uh, you know, Brooks Kepka, the three majors, but it's only four wins. You know, it's a Bobby Jones kind of record, funnily enough, because, you know, he set aside Bobby Jones' amateur championships. He still won four U.S. Opens, and he won three Open championships. So he has seven Opens between the U.S. and Great Britain. Um, and he, I think he just won one tour title because he didn't play in any pro events, really. I mean, in in 30, he played in two. And the first one, he lost to Horton Smith by a shot. And then he won the next one by 13 shots. This was against a bunch against. Uh, as a pro event in in Atlanta, and then uh, yeah in well uh, in Georgia, and then he went and won the Grand Slam in 1930. But so that was the one pro event to go with his seven majors. So Brooks is on his way to a Bobby Jones like career. If he could get to eight wins of which seven are majors like Jones, I think he's going to be in great shape. And right now it's a mix of U.S. and, and Open championships. So he's so off to a great start. So 
the jury's out on him. Justin Rose is 40. He's number one, but he doesn't not playing like number one. We'll see what he's got left in the tank. We'll see if he can win another major championship. Uh, Ricky Fowler, people point to, but he's only won four times. In my view, he's just the best player to ever win five tournaments on the PGA Tour. It has nothing to do with best player to not win a major. He's hardly won any regular events, and he disappears on the weekend. That's why I fear for uh, Thomas Bjorn with Paul Casey. I, I see a disappearing act, and if Sergio gets off to a bad start, the Ryder Cup look for the whole thing to be a major tailspin with lots of emotional stuff. We could see some shafts break, which would, to me, be entertaining. <laughs> I would enjoy seeing that. Um, so, Peter, one more before we let you yes, go, and I want to get yeah. I want to get your thoughts on Bryson DeChambeau. He's he's a mathematician who also likes to play golf, and curious to get your thoughts. Can he, his protractor, and his single length golf club uh, golf clubs change the way we play golf? Oh, it's probably not for everybody, but the few people that I know who have tried it have actually liked it quite a bit. I know that my friend Alan Shipnuck, who writes for Golf Magazine and Sports Illustrated, went to a set last year, and he really likes them. And he's pretty. I think Alan's a good player. Uh, it's not for everybody, you know. That uh, it's going to be slow to have an impact, you know. If he was Tiger, maybe you know more people would try it, but. I think it's seen as a curiosity piece more than anything else at this point. I I don't know anybody that I play golf with or who plays golf who said to me I might go ahead and do that. But, you know, he's an interesting dude, which is why I like him, just because he's interesting. He's a nutter, and he's quirky, and he's idiosyncratic, but and he's slow. Man, he's slow. He's got to pick it up. He's got to pick it up. Jordan's got to pick it up, too. There's a lot of slow play out there. He's really slow. You know, and there's a lot of stuff they need to do uh, in terms of how they televise golf to get our interest level higher, to to grow the game by doing a better job and presenting those golf tournaments. Uh, but I made me forget what the original question was as we're closing our evening together, which was what? So we were talking about Price of DeChambeau and his single leg. Oh yeah, I really, yeah, I I think he's great for the game. Um, you know, he's I I I, I you know the, the the hat and the clothes thing and. I don't like the thing against the left arm. I'm very, very against this. I wrote to Mike Davis, the USGA. I said, that's anchoring. I said, the club that you putt with can't extend at the top past the bottom of your wrist joint. Once it gets to the wrist joint, there must be no more club if you're going to putt. None of this in the left arm stuff. I really find that objectionable. I really find Longer objectionable. I really find Scotty McCarron objectionable. I don't think that Adam Scott, when he does the long putter, is actually anchoring. I think he does separate. I think David Hearn is definitely anchoring. I mean, it's just crazy. And then they say to these guys, you're anchoring, and they go, no, 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 here, I'll show you. Well, the round's over. Of course you'll show me. Hold your hand a foot away from your chest. Give me a break. I mean, all that stuff is nutty, but... I, yeah, I think that should totally be dis- disallowed. I don't think you should have, be able to have a line on your golf ball. It's a crutch. It slows down the game. You don't have a line. Just put it on the ground and roll it. You know, let's get on with it already. And that's why I don't like these greens books or any of this stuff that slows down the game. How are you going to grow the game when you make it so unattractive with people pulling out notebooks as they play a sport? I mean, can you imagine, you know, the first baseman, you know, just opening a hole on the game. He's got to consult his notes. I mean, for God's sake, just play. Just play. That's why it's so slow. There's all these these distractions and crutches and all this craziness. But, but I think he's terrific for the game, and I'm looking forward to 
his career, and I think he's going to win a lot of stuff, and I think he's got a lot of heart, and I think he knows how to close a lot better than Paul Casey, and I think he knows how to close better than Sergio, and I think he's going to do a better job there than the two of them put together. Well, Peter, before we let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing, whether it's online or it's on social media. Well, they should listen to your show because the next good thing that happens, and we're going to have you report it for us. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, I have my website, peterkessler.com, and there's a couple of good golf channel shows in the old days with Tiger and one with Arnold and a few podcasts that I did. And, uh, and I'm pretty active on Twitter. I try to do mostly golf history-related stuff there now. And uh took me a while to settle down and figure out what to do there. I got a little nutty with some people. and um, So, uh, yeah, so I'm, and I'm working on a couple of projects. And if they come true, there'll be plenty for us to talk about, Chris. And I love being on the show. And, you know, I really like all the stuff when, you know, when the weekend comes. And, you know, you send out all those nice things about all the guests that you have on your show and wishing everybody a great time and a great weekend and peace and love and happiness. You know, and on this day, you know, that's such, you know, an appropriate thing to bring up, the fact that, you know, that you spread this stuff, you know, really every day of the year. And, you know, here we are on this special day and uh, in American history and a tragic day. Um, and, but yet those are, those are the important things today too, the peace and the love and family and folks getting along and, um, and, and not being divided or divisive. And, um, uh, you know, I, you know, my, my buddies, the Beatles, all you need is love. And, um, and this is a really good day to September 11th to spread that message. Well, Peter, I can't thank you enough for, for saying that and uh, for being back and a part of the show. There's no better way for me to spend a Tuesday night than listening to you share your stories and your insights. And no matter how much time I get with you, it's it's never nearly enough. It always flies by. But I thank Thanks, you. Buddy. You're a very special man in my life, and I, uh, I appreciate you very, very much. We'll talk soon. It's great to hear your voice. All right. Take care, Peter. All the best to you and your family. Thanks, buddy, and to you and yours. Thank you. That's a great Peter Kessler. And again, PeterKessler.com is his website. Follow him on Twitter again, at Peter Kessler. And, and folks, uh, they, they, uh, at the top of the, the time that I got to spend with Peter and in his introduction, again, Golf World Magazine got it right. He's Golf's Walter Cronkite and PGA.com, you know, also got it right that Peter is one of the greatest story, you know, telling voices in world history. Both of those completely accurate. And uh, I look forward to catching up again with Peter real soon. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks again to Sean McKeel and Peter Kessler for joining me tonight. Folks, please give me your thoughts and, and you know, pass along questions. Go on our, our Facebook page, Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. Give us a comment there. If you've got a question for one of our future guests or someone who's been on the show, we'll be glad to get those questions answered for you. Please also check out our website, nextonthetee.net. That's where you're going to see who our future guests are going to be on the football side please check out our show thursday night tailgate with me and my co-host bob lazari and our announcer joe lajanusa that show is live every thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m eastern time right here on blog talk radio and that show like this one also available as a free podcast over on iHeartRadio and our good friends over on podbean can't thank those folks enough for featuring this show on their golf side and uh, thursday night tailgate and their nfl fan section on Thursday Night Tailgate, we're joined every week by five NFL legends who come on and share their stories from their playing days, plus give us their insights into what's going on around the NFL now. 
Plus, we also highlight two players doing great things in their communities in our Spotlight on the Positive segment. You can find that show, again, online at ThursdayNightTailgate.com, this show next on the T.net. And again, we're linking back over to our, sh- our, uh, our show pages over on Podbean. So you can download the Podbean app and you can listen to our show, you know, either one of our shows, you know, no matter where you're at, take us with you everywhere you go right there on your smartphone. Folks, thanks again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. We really appreciate it. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. been listening to Next on the G with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA pros and top instructors and media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Tuesday to hear more stories about the game we love from people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf.